Hello and indeed welcome to this another TES News podcast where we attempt to tackle some of the biggest issues facing the wonderful world of education. My name is Richard Vaughan and in this episode I'll be looking at what the two main parties have to offer in terms of education policies less than a year before the next general election and to get into the spirit of the football fiesta about to kick off in Brazil I will catch up with two teachers from York who are hoping to storm the charts with their very own World Cup anthem Bring It Home. First up, though, is politics. Earlier this week, both the Conservative Education Secretary Michael Gove and his opposite number at the Labour Party, Tristram Hunt, set out their stalls at a conference hosted by the right-leaning think tank Policy Exchange to give us an idea of what we should expect in the run-up to the election next May. The event came in a week when both Messrs Gove and Hunt have been dominating the headlines following the Trojan horse scandal in Birmingham, where a number of schools were accused of exposing their pupils to religious extremism. And it was against this backdrop that Mr Gove spoke of his moral purpose behind his education reforms, and he began by questioning how anyone could support an education system that had wasted so much human potential. And I don't see why, as an education secretary, I should settle for children going to a school that I wouldn't send my own children to. That would be morally indefensible. Which is why I find it hard to understand why anyone should wish to defend the state of the education system that we inherited. How can it be right that more than a fifth of children left primary school without having reached a basic level of literacy and numeracy? We wouldn't accept a fifth of hospital operations going wrong or a fifth of flights ending badly. So why should we accept a system in which school standards were still too low? Is it right that two-fifths of students should have left school without a grade C in English and Maths GCSEs? They're the basic minimum level qualifications that most employers or universities demand. But almost 40% of children failed to secure them. And among the poorest children, those eligible for free school meals, a majority left school without those qualifications. Now, I don't know anyone in this room, anyone in Parliament, anyone leading a school or leading a teacher's union who would accept their own child leaving school without this bare minimum. But we accepted this fate for hundreds of thousands of children every year. Changing that, rescuing the next generation, giving them the foundation they need to succeed, has been the driving moral purpose of our education reforms. And I challenge anyone to explain to me why that's wrong. Indeed, why we shouldn't be more driven and more determined to end this waste of human potential. Mr Gove listed his achievements so far in power, and he spelt out his guiding principles over the last four years, which will come as no surprise, including increasing autonomy and parental choice, strengthening the accountability system and, finally, improving the quality of teaching. But he said his next aim would be to eliminate illiteracy and numeracy entirely within a generation, something many taxpayers would argue was the very least they would expect from the country's education system. Children only have one chance at education. We can't let them miss out on its transformative effect. We need to ensure that every child is in school, benefiting from great teaching in every classroom, every school day. That's why we've tightened the rules on attendance and absence figures are down. But there's more to do. We need to ensure those parents who don't play their part in ensuring their children attend school, ready to learn and showing respect for their teacher, face up to their responsibilities. We will, later this year, be outlining detailed proposals to ensure that parents play their full part in guaranteeing good behaviour, and we will be outlining stronger sanctions for those who don't. And just as we need parents to discharge their responsibilities, so we need all schools to play their part. Critically, we need to ensure that all children leave primary school fully literate and numerate. It's those children who arrive at secondary school 
incapable of reading properly, who find that they can't follow the curriculum, who cover up their ignorance sometimes with a mask of bravado, disrupting lessons, disobeying teachers, dropping out of school, and in the worst cases, drifting into gang culture and ending up in the justice system. That's one critical reason why I've said that we need, as a nation, to commit to eliminating illiteracy and innumeracy. We've got to save lives which are currently being wasted. The number of children who genuinely cannot ever read, whose learning difficulties are so severe that they cannot decipher prose, is tiny. But the number of children who currently leave primary school unable to read is indefensibly high. Beyond this wider aim, the Secretary of State also hinted at further reforms to the GCSE exam market, something he failed to do this time around, and he even admitted he had made some mistakes by allowing academy chains to expand too quickly. But above all, he said there was more reform to come. I believe that we have to embrace reform, lean into the future, and set standards higher than ever before. We need to ensure that more schools enjoy greater autonomy than ever before, and more parents have a wider choice than ever before. We need to ensure that accountability is sharper, more nuanced, and more effective than ever before. That is why I welcome Sir Michael Wilshaw's leadership in saying that more inspections have to be conducted by serving school leaders, and inspection has to be more focused on underperforming schools and lighter touch for most high-performing schools. We also need to ensure that all relevant bodies, including Ofsted, are in a position to do everything necessary to deal with those schools where student or adult behaviour is unacceptable and where children are not being kept safe. Some of those changes will be difficult for both the Department for Education and for Ofsted, but we must not shy away from doing what's right. We need to do even more to secure the very best people in teaching. Andrew Carter's review into initial teacher training will help us shape a better landscape for trainee teachers. But there are clearly areas on which we can already build. The Maths and Physics Chair Programme provides additional funding for postgraduates in these subjects, enabling them to teach in our schools and to help to mentor other teachers. We have to explore how to introduce more and more powerful incentives for mathematicians and scientists to stay in education and to commit to the classroom. We need to bridge the gap between high-performing secondaries and underperforming primaries by getting specialist mathematicians and scientists teaching students from the end of Key Stage 1. We also need to bridge the gap between our best universities and schools by getting more higher education institutions like King's College London and Exeter University to set up specialist schools like their maths-free schools and, of course, the growing number of excellent university technical colleges. As I said, right at the beginning of my remarks, there is a moral purpose to our school's policy. We want to ensure that disadvantage is not destiny. We want to liberate children from any accidents of birth or background to enable them to determine their own fate. Up next was Tristram Hunt, the Shadow Education Secretary, and he began his speech by having a pop at his counterpart before adding where his party stood when it came to education. We in the Labour Party know that what our children and indeed our country need most is a pragmatic, what works approach to public policy that draws on best and next practice, takes account of evidence, not dogma, and prepares the country for the future, not the past. Before he began to wear his ideology so zealously, that used to be the Education Secretary's approach too. But on so many levels, whether it be the chaos of the free schools programme, the disregard for vocational excellence, the dismantling of the teaching standards architecture, or the allegations we are beginning to see emerge from Birmingham, the facts on the ground are beginning to call into question the wisdom of his approach. 
In 2015, the Labour Party will put forward a bold educational agenda to the electorate, raising the status, elevating the standing and lifting the standards of teaching in this country, delivering excellence in vocational education, a national strategy for improving standards and safeguarding in all of England's schools, and taking seriously, alongside core academic and vocational learning, the nurture of young people's character, resilience and emotional well-being. But at its heart will be an embrace of the what-works pragmatism to nurture college-ready, career-ready and life-ready young people. After his initial positioning, however, Mr Hunt then embarked on a list of policy areas where he and his opposite number shared common ground, and it left many to scratch their heads as to where they stood apart. Pragmatism begins with tough lessons about acknowledging your opponent's insights. And the last thing teachers and school leaders need is five more years of politically driven, frenetic, tinkering and relentless structural upheaval. So I can confirm that we support intelligent accountability led by a dynamic interventionist Ofsted that roots out underperformance. And though I am concerned by the potential for economically crucial creative and vocational subjects to be downgraded, and I will keep a watching brief on perverse incentives, I do consider the attainment eight performance measures to be an important step in the right direction. So I can confirm that we will not radically overhaul the existing accountability framework. Furthermore, I have long been a critic of the value of semi-vocational GCSE equivalents, which, when abused to boost league table scores, have had a pernicious effect upon often working-class communities like the one I'm privileged to represent in Stoke-on-Trent. So whilst I do not think we need to hollow out the curriculum assessment criteria by removing the practical elements, whilst I do not think we need to narrow the breadth of education our children receive in pursuit of the academic basis, whilst I am worried by the impact of a potential reduction of GCSE options for special schools and their work with disabled children. And whilst I strongly believe that the removal of levels has been a spectacular own goal, as a zealot for ensuring every child in this country receives a world-class education, whether in the pursuit of academic or vocational excellence, I am broadly supportive of the current moves to improve the rigour of our qualification system. Mr Hunt's speech did eventually start to draw a line in the sand between him and Mr Gove starting with the demand for all teachers to have QTS, the need for teachers to revalidate, a move dubbed as the teacher's MOT, and a greater clarity when it came to oversight of England's schools. These were all listed by the former historian before he spelt out the main pillar of Labour's reforms, a so-called national baccalaureate. What we need is a clear and coherent strategy for all learners, one that binds different pathways to success in a rigorous common framework. So I'm delighted to welcome the recent report of the Labour Party Skills Task Force, which recommended that we develop a national baccalaureate framework for all pupils aged 14 to 19. Based on a three-part common core, the national baccalaureate would mean that in addition to A-level or high-quality vocational qualifications, all learners would study English and maths to 18, undertake an extended study or collaborative project, and would develop their character, resilience and employability skills through a tailored personal development programme that could include work uh, or community service. This should not be seen, and is not, more unhelpful curriculum tinkering. The core learning component of the National Baccalaureate will be made up entirely from existing qualifications. But when we look at the challenges facing our young people today, from global economic competition to increasing mental health problems, then I would argue that the need for a broader approach to education 
that delivers excellence and opportunity for all our young people, precisely the sort that the technology manifesto suggests. It has never been more stark. After the speech, I caught up with Mr Hunt to find out how he would grade Mr Gove's four years in power and whether there was more to come from the Labour Party ahead of the general election. It's uh, less than a year to go to the uh, general election. Are there more promises to come from Labour or, or is this it? Do we now know what your policy uh, policies are for the next 12 months? Well, we've set out a lot of substantive policies now, and I think we need to explain to the public uh, why they speak to the issues of of standards, of getting young people into uh, jobs, making sure we've got great teachers um, in the classroom. I think we've we've got some um, extra thinking to do on making sure that our our early years strategy is uh, as attractive and engaging as possible, uh, and to make sure that we've got a really good um, answer on careers guidance. But I think now, with 10 months to go, it's about explaining to uh, the public, to the electorate, to teachers, to professionals, to the TES about what our policies are. Um, what would your report card be of Michael Gove so far in the, the last four years of government? Well, I think um, Michael Gove, uh, in, in, in certain areas, uh, built upon the Labour Party uh, policy, um, and that was fine. But I've, my, my criticism of him has always been on a uh, operating on a political and ideological timetable um, not taking enough um, cognizance of the evidence and that's why I reference you know the, the old Tony Blair uh, mantra on, on looking at what works and looking at the evidence the international evidence the national evidence uh, and working forwards from that uh, and I think ideology uh, has probably got the better of him. Tristan Hunt there giving his thoughts on Michael Gove. Teachers favourites and TES blogger Tom Bennett was also in the audience at the Policy Exchange Conference on Saturday and he gave his own unique take on the two main men and their political posturing. So what did you make of uh, Messrs Gove and uh, Hunt's speeches on, on, on Saturday? Yeah, it, it was great. I mean, Gove opened the show, which was a bit like letting Aerosmith open for Stacey Solomon, <laughs> and he revealed to my mind surprisingly little that was new, strumming through a kind of a series of his greatest hits like Enemies of Promise and I Won't Accept a School I Wouldn't Send My Child To. It's interesting watching people who've never heard him speak before as they realise just how good he is at working an audience. Mm. Visually, he conveys kind of bookishness and social conservatism. But when he speaks, he does so with the confidence of a man who has lived with his brief for seven years, mm. both shadow and acting. He's also, he's also surprisingly funny and charming. You, you always hear govophobes leave an audience with a, well, you know, he's much nicer than I thought presumably before they set fire to effigies of him at demonstrations and prove how nice they are themselves. He did, however, hint at some future policies that I have heard bandied about speculatively by sources close to Whitehall. For example, um, one of the things that I know that the DFA will be looking at will be an emphasis on behaviour at schools, which, you know, glory be is, is, you know, is one of my bugbears. And also greater pressures on parents to be accountable to meet their end of the social contract. Uh, with regards to their child's behaviour in schools, particularly in things like attendance and truancy, but also as part of um, of general behaviour. But to be fair, on Saturday, he more kind of teased these kind of ideas rather than actually delivering the the real thing. He He also rather amusingly warned the exam boards to look out for more curriculum reform seeing that he hadn't actually managed to get um, everything done that he wanted to get done. So I'm sure that pleased a lot of people. (laughs) Um, There was a few, unlike Gove, there was an admission of early mistakes in his educational career. For example, the reckless pace of GCSE reform. But um, to be fair, as ever with Michael Gove, um, you know, 
an admission of a mistake is never an admission of a mistake. It was a bit like when you're at a job interview and you get asked your biggest weakness and you say something like, oh, I'm a perfectionist, you know? He doesn't regret these things at mm. all. He transmits about as much self-doubt as a, as a combine harvester. <laughs> to, to those who prefer their maitre d's a little bit more contrite and circumspect, he disappoints. And frankly, I'm sure he couldn't give a damn. Moving on to uh, Tristan Hunt. Um, you know, after Gove's kind of sparkled and American smooth, Hunt came on. And I like Hunt. I really rate him. But after Gove, he seemed to wear his brief like a, like a suit rather than inhabit it like a skin. Mm. Uh, his opening gag was better, though. He, he said that he, he was dropped from the Cambridge footlights for not being regularly funny enough, <laughs> which, which I thought was funny in itself. He made an unashamedly frontal attack on the Goviers, and to be fair to Hunt, I think you have to do that in order to make a dent in the great kind of ideological citadel that Gove has built. But I was struck by the similarities between many of their positions on things like academies, uh, pleasingly on research, on accountability. I imagine that there exists in the world somewhere a credit card so diaphanous that one could slip it between the major planks of their policies, but I don't know where that exists. And it's a testament to how far the political middle ground has changed. The both parties now offer such similar entrees, and to such a large extent, and that's Gove's doing, really. He's reinvented the debate, and by virtue of having the most muscular, probably coherent views, he's redrawn the map. Even his apparent blunderbusses like enemies of promise helps to define what he stands for by defining those things to which he's opposed. His critics might be right when he, they say he polarises rather than co-ops, but I'm sure he could care, care less. Certainty has got many flaws, but hesitancy is not one of them. I think Hunt has got a lot of catching up to yeah, do. Absolutely. Do, do you think one of the fears, particularly of, as always, of, of teachers' unions is that when it comes to you know, spelling out their policies as, as Hunt and Gove did on Saturday. We have a, a very long run into a general election. Teachers' unions' fears are, are, well, teachers will be political capital on all this and they'll just be run down as they always are. Is mm. that a legitimate fear? Is that a concern? Or is it just, you know, part of the, part of the course? I think, I, th I think that that narrative, that dialogue, is the, is, is, is the narrative that the opposition to any education secretary always adopts mm. in opposition. Yeah. Um, for instance, people who criticise uh, Gove traditionally adopt the narrative that he, he, he decries teachers and he does down teachers. Now, I've been to a lot of Gove's speeches and I read most of his speeches, and I have to say that in every single one of his speeches, he always tries to mention schools which exemplify best practice mm. and teachers which exemplify uh, uh, the virtuous teacher. So to be fair, the idea that, that there's this kind of um, verbalisation of running down teachers is, 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 is just not borne out by the media. What you do see sometimes is um, perhaps some legitimate claims that teachers aren't valued enough by perhaps the policies that are enacted, and that, that's a very different matter. I think that um, it could. There's a lot. There's a lot of ground for the unions to grab if they want to talk about, for instance, um, workload issues yeah. or work-life balance issues, and so on, um, or issues along the lines of teachers not being listened to enough. But to be fair, these are historical grievances, and you could trace these back 40 or 50 years. I think um, one of the things that this education uh, secretary has, has, has enacted is he's actually quite a remarkably listening, uh, listening secretary of state. I mean, he does canvass views regularly. Whether or not he listens to them is a different matter, but he certainly canvasses the views. 
Absolutely right. I mean, I mean, you know, as we're seeing this week, education is is front and centre, and part of that is because of the character and the um, uh, 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 and rather well, character of the man, basically. Um, yeah. Do you think do you think education is going to be a big player when it comes to the the general election and the run up to to May next year? That's a very interesting one. Education is 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 always a, a huge as as an issue, mm. but. I wonder, I wonder, I wonder if Gove has stolen too much ground for it to be much of a battleground. Yeah. I mean, one of the problems that Hunt faces is that, as I said, it's really hard to get you know any ground between them. This is an accusation that was also levelled at Stephen Twigg, um, and Hunt's made a bit more of a fist of it, but but you know so far not not so much. And there's very little that Hunt can actually shout from the rooftops to say, "Well, this is how we are different." Yes. Um, I mean, he's he's. He's launched upon a couple of things which there is some difference in. Like, for example, a very clear policy, and quite a popular policy, I think, is he's promised that um, he'll revoke the, the ability of, of schools to hire unqualified mm. teachers and he'll insist that every teacher has a teaching qualification, which is it, it, it's, it's a bit like um, that scene in, in the thick of it when they're trying to work out a very, very cheap, very popular policy and they come up with bringing back hanging, <laughs> you know. It's it's relatively cheap and it's quite popular and it's quite easy to do. You know, you can do it the, the first day you come back. You just introduce it in steps and increments. Um, and then, of course, you talk a lot more about vocational qualifications. But again, that's not something that really grips the electorate. You know, the, the exact type of vocational qualification which exists. Yeah. You know, that's that's quite that's quite a niche interest, although an important one. Absolutely, Tom Bennett there. Now, our final guests on the show are two teachers from Huntington School in York who have recorded and released an England World Cup song in a bid to raise money. The Anne Maguire Education Trust, a charity set up in the wake of the fatal stabbing of the Leeds teacher earlier this year, and for the Bobby Moore Foundation, which funds research into bowel cancer. I spoke to Robin Palmiter and Ian Wilson, who make up the duo Disco Mister, to hear what they hope to achieve with their song, Bring It Home. Why did you guys decide to do this in the first place? Well, I think... Um, we thought it'd be fun. We thought uh, we love football, and we, we're both musicians and write songs. And we've, uh, we thought it'd be good, to, fun to collaborate. Also, there was a lot of kind of, oh, uh, what's the point of getting excited for the World Cup? We're going to go home in the group stages, and and that might well be true. But you kind of get behind your your team, whether they're going to go out or not. So we kind of wanted to instill a bit of excitement, a bit of uh, passion, and maybe dare we say a bit of belief uh, mm. for for the World Cup. And so you're releasing it on Monday. Yeah. What are your hopes? Where do you hope? What do you think is going to happen? Well, we're, we're putting everything into trying to get into the top 40 on Sunday the 15th. So we're really pushing it for from the 9th. Uh, when it's available on iTunes and Amazon, just for people to get behind it. Um, we're supporting two charities, the Anne Maguire Educational Fund and the Bobby Moore Fund. Um, so we're hoping, you know, the, the bigger the song gets, obviously that's more money that goes to charity. Um, and the YouTube that we put on video, uh, the, YouTube, the video that we put on YouTube uh, a few weeks ago, just so many people watched it, so mm. we figured maybe they'll buy it too, and then we'll just see what happens. So it's had, I think... I've become a little bit obsessed by your video at the moment. Uh, <laughs> it's got something more, something like more than seventy thousand. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. It's like seventy-one thousand, I think, today. Yeah, which is great. We never really thought beyond YouTube, really. And then people were saying, "Oh, can we, you know, can we buy it as a single?" And then a couple of people um, approached us to do that, and we've gone with a company called Band Crusade, who've released it. 
And yeah, so it's available on iTunes and Amazon, 79p, and it'd be yeah, be brilliant. I mean, we are the underdogs, if you yeah. like, in the World Cup uh, song competition, the unofficial competition. And um, but like England, maybe the underdogs can pull it off if everyone gets behind them. Well, I've just been told that um, Gary Barlow's uh, attempt for the official World Cup song hasn't even been released, so you've you've managed yeah. to do one better than he has. Uh, <laughs> exactly, we've got, we've got to the tournament. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Yes, now it's all at your own feet. Um, so, obviously, top forty, but I, I, I take it the, the dream would be for you know potential number one maybe well that would just be unbelievable um if it did get to number one then i think that we'd realize the dream of uh of people actually getting behind it in the games and chanting the song because there's bits in the song that can be easily chanted at a football match yeah Absolutely. so if it, if, it, if it got to number one and then everybody heard it across england then maybe just maybe some of the fans that are in brazil uh would start chanting it at the games and yeah. that we've said that from the start that is our one sort of dream is to hear bring it home being chanted at an England game. Robin Palmiter and Ian Wilson there on the attempts to storm the top 40. I urge all of you listening out there to download a copy of the single. It's for a couple of good causes and it's a good song to boot. That just leaves me to say thank you to Policy Review TV for supplying the two political speeches at the start of the show. Thank you to all my guests for taking part and a big thank you out there for tuning in. To play us out on this episode is Disco Mister and their anthem, Bring It Home. Thanks. Goodbye and enjoy.
Ronaldo's and Christ, no need for Zidane or France Beckham. Back. 